Welcome to Top Docs. I'm Mike Merrill. And I'm Ken Jacobson. Today we have R.J. Cutler talking about his film, Billie Eilish, The World's a Little Blurry. R.J. Cutler is a longtime documentary filmmaker. I'll admit, coming into this film, I didn't know a ton about Billie Eilish. I'd heard some of her music and thought it was impressive in many ways, but I did not know much about her. I didn't think I'd find two and a half hours about Billie Eilish interesting, I have to be honest. It's not just about her per se, but it, it's about her growth into this world of fame. And very importantly, it's about her family. It's very much about her relationship with her brother and her relationship with her parents, who took a very particular approach towards her education and towards encouraging her creativeness and the creativeness of her brother. This is a film that really, I think over time, it does build and build because as her career is beginning to take off, obviously the pressures are increasing, the stakes are increasing. And yet because she has this incredibly stable platform of her supportive parents and her brother, and they are this close-knit unit, and also just because of who she is and her character, it's incredible to just watch this young woman navigate these potential perils of stardom and not only perform time after time, but really never disappoint the people around her, her fans. She is a really remarkable person. Billie Eilish, The World's a Little Blurry, premiered on Apple TV Plus with a live event back in February 2021. The film is currently available for streaming on the Apple platform. Billie Eilish is on the Oscar shortlist, was nominated for four Primetime Emmys, and has been nominated for a Critics' Choice Award and the Cinema Eye Audience Choice Award. The film's director and producer, R.J. Cutler, is an Emmy Award-winning filmmaker based in Los Angeles. He's directed and or produced dozens of critically acclaimed documentaries over the years, including the Oscar-nominated The War Room, the September issue, Thin, and a perfect candidate, as well as numerous documentary series, including American High, for which he won the Primetime Emmy for Outstanding Nonfiction Program. If you enjoyed this conversation, please do follow us on your favorite podcasting platform. Coming up, we talk with RJ Cutler about his film, Billie Eilish, The World's a Little Blurry. RJ, welcome to Top Docs. I'm happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, RJ. Hey, hey. RJ, you've had a long and storied career in documentary film. At this stage, why are you making documentary films? Oh, I'm, it fills my heart. It fills my soul. It fills my mind. Some days it fills my belly. And it is a way of experiencing the world that I've now been doing for 30 years. And I can think of no richer way for me to carry on what has become my life's work, telling stories about my fellow humans. It's a great gift. It's a great honor to be able to make these movies. And that's why I guess that's why I do it. And do you have a hidden gem a documentary film that you think doesn't get the attention that it deserves? I think that one of the all-time cinema verite masterpiece films is a movie called uh, Dream Deceivers that was made by David Van Taylor. The story of two young men, teenagers in Reno, Nevada, in the early 90s, they were coming of age. They made a suicide pact. One of them, I'm sad to say, put the shotgun under his chin and pulled the trigger. The other one took the gun, which was uh, covered in all sorts of gory stuff, and pulled the trigger, but survived. When he was in the hospital room, he wrote a letter to his dead friend's 
parents saying, I now believe we did what we did because of drugs and alcohol and music like the music we heard from a band called Judas Priest, who we proceeded to quote in the letter. And the parents of his deceased friend and his parents sued Judas Priest for their children's life and damage. David Van Taylor went down Arena Nevada and made a movie about this group of people. And it is one of the most powerful films I've ever seen. It was beautifully done. It's the film that I saw when I was a young theater director and radio producer thinking about transitioning into film that made me think, you know what, I, I think it's documentary that has my name on it. It was an absolute inspiration to me. David and I actually co-directed my first directing effort, which is a film called uh, Perfect Candidate about Oliver North's Senate campaign. Anyway, that's the film. It's called Dream Deceivers. It took many years. There were issues around the music and all of that, but I believe that you can now get it all over the place. And if you care about documentary and you want to see a great film, you should do whatever you can. Travel the four corners of the world to find it. I do not work for either the film or its filmmaker, David Van Taylor. I'm just a huge fan. And I have to say, uh, A Perfect Candidate is one of my hidden gems. I ah, absolutely love that film. Thank you so much. You and I should do an hour on David Van Taylor alone. Let's consider that. Let's get David Van Taylor aboard. God that's bless a, him. Uh, I, 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 man, we love making that film. And I'll tell you something. That is a movie about Oliver North's Senate campaign when he ran in Virginia against Charles Rob Lyndon Johnson's son-in-law, longtime senator from Virginia in 1994. It was at that point one of the most expensive, if not the most expensive Senate campaign in history. Certainly one of the darkest, most twisted Senate campaigns in history. And you watch it today, and it's like you're watching the 2016 Trump candidacy. It's an amazing thing to see. The roots in the heartland of America and Virginia of Ali North's campaign, how there's a direct line between that and what has become Trumpism in America. You've made a number of films about high profile people. You followed Anna Wintour for your film, the September issue produced The War Room, of course, which follows candidate Bill Clinton. You're making a film now about Martha Stewart. What is your approach to making documentaries about well-known figures? I'm working in a certain tradition when I'm working with high-profile figures. It's the great cinema verite tradition. This is a movement founded on films like Don't Look Back about Bob Dylan and Give Me Shelter about the Rolling Stones and Crisis about Bobby and Jack Kennedy going up against George Wallace when he wouldn't let uh, African-American students register at the University of Alabama when he was governor. And the foundation of the Verite movement was the notion, the central notion was that if Robert Redford and Cary Grant could be movie stars. So too could Mick Jagger and Bob Dylan and John F. Kennedy. If a great actor could command a movie screen, why couldn't a real person? And the movement expanded out into Bible salesmen and uh, the distant cousins of the First Lady of the United States and a, a film called Grey Gardens. And the movement expanded out to coal miners in Harlan County, Kentucky, and asserted that if Robert Redford could be a movie star, so too could coal miners on strike fighting for their rights and their dignity and the land that truly belonged to them. That's a kind of inspiration that I've taken in my work. I'm compelled by people who care a tremendous amount about what they're doing and are doing it as well as they possibly can under high stakes circumstances. 
my work has led me into the lives and worlds of, as you point out, some remarkable and well-known people. Bill Clinton, yes, but James Carville and George Stephanopoulos as well, before they were well-known people. Billie Eilish is the central character in The World's a Little Blurry, but Billie Eilish's parents too, people whose names you might never have heard of if not for this film. I'm not just compelled by the famous, but by extraordinary people. And I've made all sorts of series. We did American High, which was the first kind of real nonfiction drama series in the year 2000 about a bunch of high schoolers. They were high school seniors and living outside of Chicago. And that was a series of people who have, other than that series, didn't experience kind of public fame in any sort of way. And not just that, I've made series about young men and women who were in the military in the wake of September 11th, about college freshmen at the University of Texas. So there is a full range, but many of the people I have made films about have been known. And some of the themes I'm interested in, I suspect, are what is greatness? What does it take? How does fame impact the lives of people who are doing extraordinary work? I make films and insist when I meet my subjects on that if we're going to make a film together that I have to have final cut. I don't want to make a film with a subject to where and I don't have final cut. Sometimes it's because they're well known that you want to lift the burden of that off of them. You want them to hand you that control so that they and the many layers of people around them don't have the control and you just can do your work together. And I've been doing that really since the beginning. I didn't direct The War Room, Penny and Chris did, but certainly since Anna Wintour, that's been the arrangement that I've had with my subject. When we first arrive on Billie Eilish here, she's not yet Billie Eilish in some ways. She hasn't finished mm -hmm. an album. She's still playing to relatively small rooms. How did you land on her as a subject? How did you know? <laughs> I just was fortunate. I was invited to meet with her. She did have a career, but you're right. She and Phineas had not yet written their first album. They were playing in these small spaces, maybe, you know, the largest space was maybe 1,100 people in a theater in London that I saw her in. But I met her. And that was all it took for me, was spending time together. And we sat around in her backyard for about an hour and a half, one afternoon. Phineas and Billy and Patrick and Maggie. I, I promise you, if she had finished her album and it had come out and done just fine, and that had been it, I believe this would have been as rich and compelling a story to tell. It, its subject would have been different. Its themes would have been different. It would have been a different film. But I would have been at just as passionate, just as engaged, because here was a young woman through whose eyes I felt there was an important story to tell about being a young woman at this moment in time and about being a young artist at this moment in time. We see early on she's has an idea for a video and she's working through the concept with her mom in that famous backyard. To say she has an idea of what she wants would be an understatement, right? She, Correct. Her, she was born with that idea. She came out of the womb directing that scene. And, right? and, as, and as a director. Directing that video. That's what yeah. I mean. Not that scene, but directing that video. It was shocking. Billy's holding the phone. I'm not there. That's before I get on board. And, and one day we were in the van filming and Billy was like, oh my God, RJ, I got to show you this thing I just found. I, I forgot I had done it. She gave it to me. And while I was watching, Maggie said, what do you think? Is it, she's a little rude, isn't she? Or something like that. And I was like, what do I think I'm looking at? A, you know, a, a natural born director. It is so clear. It was so clear. She was 16 in that shot. I was startled and I was happy, grateful to have it.
I don't know what she knows about documentaries, but she famously, like many of her contemporaries, is a fan of The American Office, this mockumentary. She's seen it 14 times and she uh, uses it at level midnight in one of her songs. How was it working with somebody whose sense of documentary was maybe mockumentaries? It's funny you say, I told you about this backyard meeting that I had with Billy and when we decided that we were going to work together. One of the questions I asked her was what she thought a documentary about her might be. And she said, I'd like it to be like The Office. I thought to myself, maybe this won't work out because The Office is scripted. And if that's what she means, I'll think about it, but I'm not sure we're on the same page. But that wasn't what she meant, because of course she knew that it was scripted and it wasn't a documentary. What she meant, and I realized this on reflection, was that she wanted to have the kind of relationship with the camera that uh, the John Krasinski character has in The Office, where just every once in a while, he'll look right down the barrel and he'll see the audience and he'll connect to the audience. And he'll say, I know you're there. And I know you know that I know that you're there. But what does that have to say about this moment where I'm looking at you? That's not dissimilar to the nature of the relationship she has with her own audience. What a brilliant, complex resonant notion for her to have and to share with me. And when we started filming, I mentioned this to Jenna Rocher, our DP, and and encouraged her to make the camera available to Billy in moments where she thinks she might want it. You see in the film two or three of those moments, which are the ones that we use. I just saw the movie the other night. There was a screening here in LA at the beautiful Arrow Theater held by American Cinematheque. And so I got to see it on a big screen, which was great because I've only seen it a few times with an audience on a big screen. There's this scene after she meets Justin Bieber where they're all back in the hotel room and Justin texts her. And one of the things he says to her is, don't believe that you're better than anyone else. You are great, engage in your greatness, but don't think you are better than it. And she looks right at the camera and she points. And that's a moment of connection with her audience. It's a beautiful thing. There are other moments like that. So that was the office experience, other than the fact that one day we filmed her with Rain Wilson and often we filmed her watching because she has that series on rotate. But she is a filmmaker by nature. I think she will prove if she so chooses to be a brilliant filmmaker, if she puts uh, time into that over the course of her life. Billie Eilish did not have any interest in making this film. She controls everything in her world. You see it in the film. She is in control of her art and her business and her image and the perfume that they sell with her name on it. She is really up and down the whole Billie Eilish thing. But when it came to the documentary, she made the decision. I I, I suspect in part because of the conversation we had about Final Cut at that very first meeting, but she made the decision to let the filmmakers be the filmmakers. I assume that you were basically a small crew. You mentioned your DP, Jenna Rocher. I'm imagining you and Jenna, a sound person, really just a pretty small number of people. That's it. Yeah. Can no you... lights, no cables, okay. everything you're imagining. So you were able to pretty much be a fly on the wall, occasionally a fly that your subject would stare at, but that didn't happen very often. Mostly she just went about her business and the family went about their business and you were there shooting. I don't use fly on the wall as the metaphor, and you'll understand it because of your wisdom in, in the art form, because we're not flies. I'm no fly, as you, you can see, your audience can't, but you can see that I'm a might bit bigger than a fly. 
I'm a big boy. And, and Jenna's a, a, a grown woman with a camera on her shoulder. And Jay's got a boom mic that makes it look like he's uh, 10 feet tall. So we like to think of ourselves rather than as flies on the wall, as people with whom the folks we're shooting have a relationship. And I like to think of us as people with whom they are as comfortable being themselves as they are with anybody with whom they are comfortable being themselves. And in order to get there, we have to earn their trust because the people with whom they're comfortable being themselves are people they trust. And so that is the fundamental nature of the dynamic. It, it has a lot to do with the fact that it's only three of us. It has a lot to do with the fact that we're a very small footprint because there's very little in the way of getting to know us as people. But we work very hard to connect with our subjects as people who are um, real people telling their stories. You brought up Don't Look Back, and I couldn't help but think about it about every 10 minutes in this film. I said that as a great credit to you. I didn't know I was going to be interested in Billie Eilish, and you showed me why I should be. Billie hates, or at least claims to hate, songwriting. I compare these scenes where she's working with her brother to the scenes in Don't Look Back, where Bob Dylan is just pounding away on the typewriter no matter what's going on. He's just going. He's just a yeah. fount of productivity. Sure. And, and for her, it's much more torturous, it seems. Yeah. Well... They're, first of all, they're different artists. They're different artists at different moments in their lives. I, I was just talking with Billy yesterday, and um, one of the subjects was her writing, and she doesn't hate it anymore. She loves it. She's loving it now. People evolve. Bob Dylan was several years older and don't look back than Billy was in our film. I think of Billy as a kind of documentarian of her own life. And when you're a 15, 16 year old teenage girl coming of age, documenting your own life with all of the raw emotion and artist sensibility and empathy and poetic soul that Billie Eilish has, uh, it's probably pretty tough getting through that. And we know that. We know about her struggles with mental health, and she's been very open about that. And we know about what we see in the film on that subject. So documenting that life probably wasn't easy. I think that has a lot to do with it. Also, if you're born in the same family and you grow up in the next room to the greatest producer of pop music, perhaps in the world, and he's your brother and your music partner and you write the songs together and he has that gift that he has, uh, you might not love songwriting also because the bar's pretty high, not in your town, not in your city, not in your industry, but in your fricking bedroom, the bar's pretty high. So I understand what she means when she talks about hating songwriting. And I understand all of it, knowing her the way I do in that context. Dylan had it easy. He didn't have Phineas around. Yeah, you do great you do justice <laughs> to Phineas. And the, you really show his hard work as a producer and director, and also as somebody who's an initiator. Maggie posted today, you know, yesterday it was announced that Billy's going to be the headliner at Coachella. She'll be the youngest headliner in the history of Coachella. And she's headlining Saturday night, both weekends. And, uh, uh, and oh, and today Maggie posted, Phineas is playing on Sunday nights. It's crazy that these two brilliant artists, it's not crazy, of course. And it's one of the things that compelled me. How does one family produce these two children? How did these two children come from one mother and one dad? And you see a lot of that in the film as well. It's a film as much as anything about parenting. We definitely wanted to ask about Billy's parents, Patrick and Maggie, who they themselves are artists, actors, screenwriter, musicians. 
it's really interesting to learn that they chose to homeschool their mm -hmm. two children and yeah. really nurture their songwriting skills and their all of their artistic dreams. all of their artistic dreams as i understand it i wasn't there when they were growing up but as i understand it the question every day was what do you want to make today they didn't just homeschool their own kids they were part of a collective and all the parents contributed pretty much every day the question that billy and phineas were asked by their parent teachers were what do you want to create today and their creations spread certainly into music and songwriting but as you see in the film billy was a dancer first and foremost that was her passion and i've got dvds full of the music videos she directed and the movies that she made when she was a little kid they pursued it all I, I think that Maggie and Patrick were inspired by the story of, I, I think it's the Hanson brothers who were homeschooled and were becoming well-known when Billy and Phineas were young kids. And they thought, wow, not for religious reasons, but for artistic reasons, it would be interesting to raise their kids in a homeschool environment. I'm a parent and I know you are as well, RJ. I have three teenagers under my roof right now. Yeah, man. It's crazy. <laughs> it is nuts. Talk um, about letting go. And I, I thought when I was watching her mom, Maggie, trying to navigate everything we have to navigate and then some stuff. There's that scene right after the really bad meet and greet. Billy, in some ways, is, well, let's face it, she's kind of chewing out her team and they're comically all in the car with her at the same time. And her mom's playing this role of being mom, like kind of both empathizing and also saying, you know, you could have done better, Billy. But then it seems to turn a little bit and it becomes more like she's sort of part of the team too. And she's taking direction from Billy, but also telling the rest of the team, we failed you. It seems so complex. And I think you must've felt for her in that moment. I feel for everybody in that moment. I, I, it, it's complex. They're, listen, everybody on team Billy is going through something they've never gone through before. None of them have had that experience. How many people on earth have had that experience? So and not just Billy, but Billy's mom, not just Billy's mom, but Billy's managers. They've never done this. They've never been in the center of something that's exploding like this. They anticipated, but how can you anticipate what isn't known? And that's the subject really of that scene. So it's, yes, it's complex as you describe it. I have nothing to add to your thorough description of the intensity and the complexity and the frustration and the eagerness to have this moment done. Nobody wants to be in that situation. Nobody wants Billy to feel failed. Billy most of all, but close second, everybody else. So you see it, you see them growing, you see them kind of, you know, it's like the fly. It's like when Jeff Goldblum comes out of the thing and he's got to figure out how to move his sinewy muscles and bones and you hear them cracking. This is coming of age. You feel it viscerally. Billy is a really remarkable performer on stage. She also has a very interesting and I think laudable relationship with her fans. For one, she doesn't like to call them fans. And mm -hmm. I think it's because she really identifies strongly with them. I'm curious about you being there at some of those concerts and observing the fans mm -hmm. or the people there at the concert. We won't call them fans for, for Billy's sake especially all those people in the front rows, many of whom are young teenagers themselves. Many of them are singing along to her songs. What were some of your interactions with the audience like? Well, I'm really observing. 
I must have seen 40 Billie Eilish shows the year that we filmed this. I'm observing those young men and women, boys and girls, who were experiencing this kind of almost shamanistic experience. It's such a spiritual moment for them, like the great poets, the great artists, the great performers, and it's cathartic. It's all of those kind of very deep, emotional, mythic things. It's not the only place in the world that these things happen, but man, it's happening and you feel it. And you feel it not only in the performances, but you feel it when Billy takes the time to meet the fans. Those exchanges were very emotional for me. I found them very powerful. Jenna and I would look at each other and have a hard time holding back tears. Billy is a deeply empathic woman who understands her role in the lives of her fans. She feels a deep connection to them. She says in the very first scene of the movie, you have to be okay because that's why I'm okay. There is a connection. They have healed her and through her art, she heals them. And that is the power of art. It's the power of poetry. You see her in tiny rooms with the power of the greatest poets, and you see her in enormous landscapes with the power of the greatest poets. There's a shot at Coachella where you see the whole landscape. She's just sitting up there and she has just said to them, join me in this moment. Let's put our phones down, my generation. Let's put our phones down and let's be together right now. And then she sings, it's, you know, the describing of it is emotional. I'm feeling emotional now, remembering what it was like to be there. And that's why everybody talks about Billie Eilish's first show at Coachella. That's the night that you see, because she connected in that way to hundreds of thousands of people. They felt it in the back row. You bring up the immediacy, and again, at the same time as you look out over the audience, we see all these iPhones, which I'm sure Apple does not hate. The suggestion that Apple had any editorial control or placement. My dear friends at Apple, it's well known that they licensed this film for a lot of money. God bless, finally, after 30 years of making films, I got paid on one, and that's all good. But please know that they honored my final cut as well. They gave us complete editorial control. They were incredibly supportive. M Molly Thompson and Matt Dentler and Zach Van Amberg, everybody over at Apple was wise in their feedback. And now I'll acknowledge they might also like that there are a lot of iPhones, but not, not part of anyone's agenda. Thank you for clarifying that. I'm glad yes. you got paid. It is a very good <laughs> film, I have to say. So social media, there's this great scene where she and Phineas are working on the theme to No Time to Die, the latest film from James Bond. This is a franchise that's notorious for protecting its brand, and yeah. they're handing it over to a 19-year-old Rookie, it's amazing. 17, 17. In that scene, she's 17. That's amazing. Amazing, amazing. But what she's focused on very interestingly is not, will Daniel Craig like this song? It's, oh, the internet's going to be mean to me because I'm belting. And Paul McCartney belted, you know, Adele, they all belted when it came to James Bond. You got a belt for James Bond. But she's very concerned about how it's going to be perceived. Well, she is a woman of her times. She is a master of her social media uh, engagement, and she's got look her up today. Let's should we look her up and see how many followers on Instagram alone? It's, it's ninety nine point two million. Goodness gracious! Imagine waking up every day with ninety nine point two million people telling you what they think of you. You know what I'm saying? And maybe it was sixty two million then. 
but you'd find me under the bed. And I'm sure they're dead when you find her there. You wouldn't find her there, but she wishes she could go there. But she's got to manage the 99.2 million. That's Instagram. We haven't added Twitter. We haven't added TikTok. We haven't added Facebook. I get it, man. I get it. And that's why I wanted that moment to live in the film, because that is what's on her mind. And she has the self-awareness and the humor to not only realize that's what she's feeling, but to laugh at herself for feeling it, even while she's seeking her brother's comfort. I think one of the things that we're consciously aware of as an audience, partly because of the timeline that you're there with her, is this idea of the perils of stardom. We know where this is going to end up, and we see the process as it happens. She's about to explode, a huge international star. She seems to really handle it all remarkably well. What I'm curious about is from your point of view as the filmmaker watching this, I'm sure this was a question you were keeping in your mind. The questions in my mind are, what did I see today and what might I see tomorrow? That's the essence of directing one of these films are those two questions. And then it ties to all these complicated themes. What does her parenting, the way she was brought up, have to do with the way she handles that? What does who she is have to do with the way she handles that? What does her connection to her audience have to do with the way she handles that? What does her relationship with her brother have to do with the way she handles that? How does she handle all of that in the context of the fact that she's, you know, in my head, I think of her kind of as half human, half deity, something. I hold our poets up to high regard, but the human half, how does she deal with her fame in the context of her human half? And the fact that on some days the relationship she's in isn't working out and her heart is aching. How does she deal with her fame in that context? How does she find comfort in her friends and in her family and in her art and in her fans? That's why we make these films to explore these complexities. So in the film, there is the relationship she has with Q, but in some ways, the real romance of the film is with Justin Bieber, right? Sure, sure. Another deity who honors her, who recognizes her, who, who she holds up as a deity in her own life, a figure to be loved and worshipped, and then who comes down to earth and embraces her, right, and guides her. And the film is, in a way, structured the first scene after she finishes the album, she tells us about Justin Bieber. The midpoint of the movie, she meets Justin Bieber. And the final scene of the movie, Justin Bieber honors her, right? He calls her after the Grammys and says to her, good for you. The bar of the journey for Billie Eilish is in this movie is not that high. The two kind of emotional peaks are, she says life is good in the car. Remember in the car on Grammy day, she adds up her, she talks about she's gotten some nominations and she had a donut last night and she's not too bad looking and her dog's in the car and it's raining and yeah, life's good. And she's famous. She's happy about that. And then the other high point is Justin Bieber says, good for you. And they're simple. It's very simple, but that's life, right? I love the scene where you actually see the two parents talking to each other and what they're talking about is, did we put find my friends on her phone or not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's not quite sure what that is. They're, they're so overmatched. They're so overmatched by the moment. The technology, 
the car, the child leaving the nest. I love that scene because, of course, the whole movie is really about these two parents who are dreading the moment their children will leave the nest as you are and with your three teenagers, as I am already, even though my oldest is six. We sit around, Jane and I, we're, we're miserable already. One day they will leave us. For parents, this is the experience. And they're Maggie and Patrick from really from moment one just dreading the departure of like the chrysalis. Off she will go. And then you see her go. You see her go. You experience their outer misery. Patrick stands firmly on two feet and has an existential crisis before your very eyes. I'm amazed by, uh, if you look at the film, they both talk about the moment by referring to Billy with a gesture that goes like this. Maggie's talking about her career and goes like that. And Patrick is talking about the freedom of teenage life when you get a license and goes like that. So straight up, like just for the audience. That glide. Yes, I'm sorry. I should have described (laughs) that my arm is going up. It it, it was a beautiful moment to be able to tell this family story. It really was a ridiculous honor to be trusted by them in the way that they trusted me and the team. You got to be grateful for the, the, the gifts you get. That was a great gift. I wanted to ask about one scene where she literally came down to earth, the concert in Milan. Yeah, it's the first city on her European leg of her tour. For our audience, if you haven't seen it yet, she's dancing, she falls on stage, she tears ligaments in her ankle, but at the time, no one knew that the injury was that severe. Before she runs off stage, she says, I'd rather not do a show than do a crappy version for you. I just want to give you a good show, and I can't. Yeah. And then she runs off stage. There's a discussion backstage and she's brought back on stage to yeah. finish the concert. She definitely has her own idea of what being a professional means. And I think she states that with that comment. But to me, it's maybe a statement that uh, concert promoters would not necessarily agree with. There's history of, you know, the show must go on. What I'm seeing in the scene is the potential for Billy and her ideas and ideals of what professionalism means coming up against the machinery of the business of concerts. Is that something where you think she's going to just have to conform to this idea, for instance, of the show must go on? I, I, I don't know. It's all available for honest interpretation. So I support the interpretation you're giving it, but I'm not sure. It's not meant to be a a critique of the business. I've heard people talk about that scene and say, should Billy have been allowed to go back on? So I see a full range. You're talking about, here's Billy saying, I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to tell you what my experience was right now, RJ, the filmmaker. And then I'm going to tell you that I wasn't there. Not only wasn't I there, the crew wasn't there. So we're going to talk a little bit about the moment of verite that we live in. But before that, I can tell you that this is Billy's family. These men and women who were on her team have been with her since her first tour. Of course, the crew's grown a little bit, but the folks who were in that meeting, they're not just her blood family. They're The others are her family. They've watched her grow up. They've protected her. They've taken good care of her. What they care about is her health and safety, first and foremost. And the boss 
The absolute boss in that scene is Billie Eilish. So the decisions are made by Billie. She's taking counsel and she's a professional. And you've heard her say earlier in the film, she would rather not do a show than do a show that isn't the best show she could give. And you hear her say it again. And I recently heard her talking with Dave Grohl about that moment, which is endemic. Famously, I believe Dave Grohl broke his leg on stage and then later had a throne built for him that now he lends out to other people who break their legs. And he was the one who you see the physical therapist in the film, Freddie. It was Dave who introduced Billy's family to Freddie. Rock stars are always in pain. Look at what they put themselves through night after night. And the show must go on because their audiences want it. Their audiences need it. And they want to give it to their audiences and they want to experience it together. That's part of the burden of the shaman, I guess one would say. So all of that is what's going on in there. And if there is a conflict to be had with an ethos that is not humane, I'll tell you, Billy's going to have it. She has it. They serve vegan food on the road. Who was it who wanted to dress her for the Met Ball? And she said, fine, you can dress me as long as you stop selling fur. And they said, that's okay. We'll stop selling fur. This young woman uses her platform to be a leader and a leader in the service of the politics and the worldview that she embraces. So I, I, I suspect that will uh, extend into professionalism. But that scene is an amazing scene because we weren't in Milan. And the day Billy came back, she was like, my God, you've got to see this footage. And she showed us, you see it in the film, she showed us her ankle being torn up. And I crowdsourced that material. I got it from all the people who were there, as well as the folks who were backstage shooting. And then Greg Fenton edited it together in this incredible way. This is an example of what I call neo-verite, which is the kind of verite you can get when everybody on earth has a camera in their pocket, which is very different than what my, my mentor, D.A. Pennebaker and his peers had when they were making films about Dylan and Jagger. They had to rely on their own cameras alone. The end, it's an incredible end to the film and an incredible moment in her career where she wins all these Grammys. We see her directing a, a video. She turns 18. The world's her oyster. And you mentioned for Billy, the high point is just to say it's a good day, I think. Life is good. Life is good. What's interesting from an audience point of view is all these amazing things are happening. And yet I think we still find ourselves rooting for this young woman as if she's an underdog or an every woman. Why do you think that is? Why does she have this effect on us? I guess because, as I've said, she's part something unique and deeply special, and she's part all of us. She's part, as I say, part deity, part human, part alien, part earthling, part superstar, part our daughter, our kid sister, our friend. And it is a unique mixture of these extraordinary qualities that make her such a rich subject for a film like this. And what I responded to the, the day I met her, I think I may have said earlier in this conversation, but from that moment I met her, I thought, here's an incredible opportunity to make a film about an extraordinary young artist coming of age and an extraordinary young woman coming of age. And that those two narratives could intertwine, could be woven together. I think you see that and experience that because I saw it and I experienced it. And I think we all see it and experience it because it's who she is. Love to hear what's up next for you. 
Oh, I'm doing all sorts of things and having a great time. Announced projects include uh, a feature documentary about Martha Stewart, the American icon, the film I'm very deeply involved with at the moment. I also have a new production company called This Machine, and we're busy on all sorts of things on all sorts of fronts in the nonfiction, what we call premium documentary space and having a great time. As I said, I came in, I didn't know that much about Billie Eilish, despite having teenagers in the house. And I, I love this film. I was deeply impressed with her as a person. I was extremely impressed with her parents. I do think this is a film about parenting, and I'm glad you said that, the second half especially. For those of the audience who maybe aren't that familiar with her music, I think you still found this fascinating. If you care about families, if you care about communication, if you care about the state of the world today, this is just a fabulous film that really opens up so many questions. We only asked a quarter of our questions, RJ, but thank you for your time today. Thank you guys. What a great thing you do. I love your podcast. I love that you're exploring these films in such lengthy, thoughtful conversations. I look forward to uh, having the opportunity to do it again. Thank you so much, RJ. Congratulations on the film. Thanks guys. Be good. Be good.